This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. This is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can talk about the signs that somebody will reject you, right? I've heard this question word a few different ways, like what are the signs I'm about to get dumped, other things like this. And I know this can be a bit of a morbid topic, but in romantic relationships, rejection happens quite a bit and it's painful for people. So it's an important question. I'll answer this question by looking at the 12 signs that someone may reject you. Now in this video, I'm not talking about somebody being turned down for a date, but rather somebody who's in a relationship where there's some level of investment. So maybe dating for a month or more, or of course, if the couple agrees, they're in a long-term relationship like a marriage. In relationships, rejection is painful, and it's a common situation. Ultimately, of course, necessary, because if nobody rejected anybody else, then whatever relationship somebody was involved in first, they would just stay in for their whole life. So rejection really has to happen. It's thought of as unilateral. So one person does the rejecting, and the other person is rejected. But sometimes people want to be rejected, right? So I'll talk about this in a moment, how that works. Now, when we look at the research literature around rejection. We see this term initiator status, right? So when one person's going to reject another, the person who's doing the rejecting is the initiator. And the person who's being rejected is the non-initiator. So what I'm going to do here for this video is I'm going to use kind of a person A, person B situation just to be clear about who I'm talking about. So person A will be the non-initiator. So they're the person who's concerned that person B, the initiator, may be thinking about rejecting them. So person A, non-initiator, person B, initiator. Now, I mentioned that rejection is more or less necessary at some level if people are going to have romantic relationships, but it does come with a cost. We know there are negative outcomes associated with being rejected. Those outcomes include mental illness, automobile accidents, homicide, major depressive disorder, substance use, a loss of self-esteem, sadness, anxiety, anger, loneliness, and shame. Now, the problems are not exclusive to person A, the non-initiator. The problems can also occur for person B, the one doing the rejecting. Now, there are also some positives associated with rejection. We see that it can lead to perceptions of personal growth and positive life change. 
So rejections are always a bad thing. We see that when somebody's rejected in a romantic situation, this may be something that prompts them to seek mental health care, like they may go see a counselor. And of course, as a counselor, I've seen this many times. And one of the things that really stands out to me about the pain of rejection, the way people experience it, is that it can last for many years and it can hurt just as much many years later, right? So time doesn't necessarily heal wounds. I've been in a number of situations clinically where I've been listening to somebody kind of talk about the pain of a romantic rejection. And I was thinking to myself, because of the way the person was describing the pain, that it must have occurred maybe a week ago or perhaps a month ago, but it had to be in that time range. And then later on in the conversation, I find out that the rejection occurred 30 or 40 years ago. So again, it can really be persistent. That pain can really hang on. Because of the pain associated with rejection, a lot of people try to avoid it. And it is 100% avoidable, right? You can avoid the rejection in romantic relationships by not getting involved in romantic relationships. But that's not a solution for most people. So then we see some kind of other things that people do, right? Like they might leave first. So they sense they're going to be rejected. So they leave first because that may not be as painful. Although, of course, it could be. We also see people will try to improve the relationship. So they sense the rejection's coming and they'll try to do more, be more engaging, communicate more. And this can help. Certainly, this can prevent some relationships from failing. But sometimes people just aren't compatible, right? So rejection, at least in some cases, is inevitable. So why does someone reject someone else in the context of romantic relationships? Why is there a person B out there? Many of them, in fact. Well, we see that the relationship may not be working for them. They decide not to invest the effort. Could be compatibility issues. Could be that they found somebody better or they believe that there's somebody better out there. So they want to disengage from that relationship so they can be kind of available again to engage in other relationships. It could be that person B was treated in a way that made them feel unwanted. So they struck first. I touched on this before, not wanting to wait around to find out what happens next. A good analogy to this is the idea in an employment situation of a constructive discharge. So if there's an employee working for an employer, that employer may want that employee to quit. So that employer may want the employee to leave, but the employer doesn't want to fire them or they're worried about legal liability or something. So they make the employee's life difficult, right? They give them fewer hours to work or an unpleasant work assignment. And eventually the employee is the one that rejects the employer. The employee quits. But of course, the employer caused that, right? So when we see a rejection occur in a romantic relationship, we can't really assign blame, even though, of course, we don't necessarily need to assign blame at all because it's a natural part of many relationships. But if we were going to assign blame, it's not as clear as putting it on the initiator. Sometimes the non-initiator actually does initiate the rejection in a manipulative way. Sometimes rejections happen because of a mistake. So person B is impulsive and they have an error in judgment and they reject person A. They might regret it. It might be too late to fix it. But that could be one of the reasons why the rejection took place. 
And of course, I mentioned the manipulation. Sometimes it's just manipulation and the manipulation is complete. Person B obtained whatever they wanted to obtain from that relationship. So they reject person A. So now looking at the 12 signs that somebody may reject you. Again, here I'm looking at some signs emanating from the non-initiator and some that, of course, emanate from the initiator. I'm going to have more signs here toward the initiator, but I'll specify which person I'm talking about. So at sign number one, I am talking here about the non-initiator. And this would be low self-esteem in person A. So what happens here with person A kind of encouraging a rejection from person B would be that with low self-esteem, person A tends to see problems that don't exist. They tend to see signs of rejection that don't exist. And they start to back away in that relationship. They create distance and they weaken the level of attachment, right? It affects the attachment quality. So low self-esteem really can lead to a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, sign number two has to do with the personality of both person A and person B. I'll start here with the non-initiator. So in terms of the characteristics we might see here in person A, I'm going to use the five-factor model of personality theory. So this would be openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. I remember these through the acronym OCEAN. So the profile, again, we would typically see or be more likely to see in a non-initiator who eventually is rejected would be low openness to experience, especially like rigid thinking. We see low conscientiousness, so impulsiveness and being disorganized. Extroversion is not as clear. Sometimes high extroversion can cause difficulties and sometimes low extroversion can. So I really don't have a clear direction with this one. Either one can lead to some difficulties. Being in the middle is probably the most ideal to avoid rejection. In terms of agreeableness, we see low agreeableness, so being antagonistic and having low trust. And in terms of neuroticism, high neuroticism. So again, this kind of ties in with the self-esteem piece I talked about before. If somebody's looking at signs and interpreting those signs as dangerous when they're not, which is associated with neuroticism, that could be a problem. So what about person B? What would be the personality characteristics we see in the initiator, the person who rejects? Well, typically high openness to experience and the facets of the most interest to me would be adventurousness and fantasy. So if somebody's really looking for an adventure, a lot of times that would happen outside the current relationship and fantasy, that's the same thing, right? So they're fantasizing about somebody else. Now, if they can invest that energy of adventure, that drive for adventure and the fantasies into the current partner, then that would decrease the chance that they would be the one to reject. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. 
We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. It is from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. Now, in terms of conscientiousness, of course, low conscientiousness, impulsivity would be more associated with rejection. Here with the initiator, extroversion would clearly be more tied to being the one who rejects because people who are extroverted tend to cheat more, they tend to be more talkative, and they tend to flirt more. All of these things tied to rejection. Low agreeableness, just like for the non-initiator, would be a problem being antagonistic. Now, in terms of neuroticism, this can get a bit tricky. So with high neuroticism, somebody would be impulsive, emotionally reactive. But with the impulsive behavior, we would see it's the type of behavior where somebody can't resist temptation. That's the type of impulsivity we see with high neuroticism. It's different than the disorganized impulsivity we see with low conscientiousness. So certainly, high neuroticism in that way would be problematic. But also, low neuroticism could be problematic because with low neuroticism, somebody really isn't afraid. They're not afraid to lose the relationship. They may be cold, distant, and have a lack of empathy. So that could make it easier for somebody to reject somebody else. Without that empathy component kind of keeping them in check, again, rejecting becomes fairly easy. So moving on to sign number three, this one has to do with more complex personality structures. So combinations of traits. The first one that comes to mind here under sign number three would be narcissism. So this would be for the initiator, right? So narcissism, the dark triad in general. So we see not just narcissism, but also psychopathy and Machiavellianism. And the subclinical sadism we see associated with the dark tetrad, right? That would also lead to somebody being more likely to reject. In terms of personality disorders, like the official mental disorders and the DSM, we see dependent personality disorder tied to the initiator rejecting. And this sounds counterintuitive. Like if somebody was dependent, why would they initiate the dissolution of a relationship? But what happens a lot of the time is somebody's dependent on somebody else and they're always looking for a better source of support. So they find somebody who can support them better and they break off that relationship. So that need to have support really outweighs feelings of affection, right? Now, of course, with some people with dependent personality disorder, they latch onto another person and never let go, right? So it really depends on the manifestation of the disorder. Other personality disorders, paranoid personality disorder, if somebody's distrusting and they're accusing people falsely, that makes them more likely to reject. We see borderline personality disorder, now, this one's interesting because technically speaking, yes, somebody with BPD would be prone to reject a lot. But because of the idealization devaluation cycle, the love-hate cycle, they're also going to invite person A back into that relationship. So it's rejection, acceptance, rejection, acceptance, back and forth. So who knows where that relationship is going to end, whether it's going to end on a rejection or on acceptance. But technically, somebody with BPD, again, would tend to reject a lot. Now, I mentioned narcissism before. This, of course, includes narcissistic personality disorder. But we also see the other two personality disorders from cluster B associated with rejecting behavior. Antisocial personality disorder, 
probably due to that lack of empathy and histrionic personality disorder, because that disorder is associated with having a lot of affairs. So again, if somebody's in a relationship, person B's in a relationship, and they want to have an affair, it makes sense that they would reject person A at some point. Sign number four is if person B is highly attracted to a characteristic that person A does not have, especially if person B develops an obsession around a particular characteristic. I've seen a number of characteristics in my clinical experience, people obsessed with money. So if person A does not have money, if person A does not have a body weight that person B wants, usually person B is looking for a lower body weight. If person A does not have the status, like the level of career success, sometimes person B wants a different personality in their partner. Sometimes they want a partner that does not use substances or who does use substances. Sometimes a criminal record can be problematic. They want somebody who doesn't have a criminal record, especially because that can interfere with employment. And a lot of the time, what I hear in these situations is that person B is looking for somebody more stable than person A, right? So stability is a characteristic that people can really take seriously and sometimes become obsessed with. Sign number five has to do with the opportunity to find alternatives. So if person B is exposed to a number of alternative mates, especially if it's something that happens on a regular basis, that increases the risk that they're going to wander off. And of course, that results in rejection eventually. Now, when person B is exposed to alternatives while intoxicated, so person B is intoxicated and the alternatives are intoxicated, in my experience, I found that dramatically increases the risk. Now, there are certain situations where this would be expected, like if person B spends a lot of time at a bar, but I've also seen this in work settings, right? And we shouldn't see this in work settings, like this is a little disturbing, but I have seen a number of work settings where substance use is fairly common and person B, so to speak, is exposed to a number of other potential mates. This, I think, is one of the really significant risk factors, right? Like combining exposure to alternatives with intoxication, this is not a good sign. This is something that often would lead to a rejection or at least some sort of problem in that primary relationship. If you throw extroversion into the same mix, which kind of makes sense based on that behavior, it's like dumping gasoline on a fire. It's really going to increase that risk even more dramatically. Sign number six has to do with deception. So lying, prevarication. This one's kind of interesting because if somebody has the tendency to lie, just by itself, that doesn't necessarily mean they're more likely to reject somebody else. It's really the link over to the dark triad traits I talked about before, narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Lying is associated with the dark triad. Now, lying may not be desirable and can cause other problems in a relationship. And certainly, if somebody's lying about contact with alternatives, that could be problematic. But just looking at lying itself, it's not always really clear. Again, that association with the dark triad would probably point more toward risk. Sign number seven is when person B tries to separate resources and kind of other similar items. So if person B has a concern over something that's shared in that relationship, like if person A and person B both have their phones on the same phone plan, and now all of a sudden person B wants to get their own phone plan, or they have their cars on the same insurance policy, 
and person B wants to get their own policy. Anything that kind of creates separation or distance could be indicating a rejection is coming up. Sign number eight is if we see dissatisfaction in terms of sex. And this can work a lot of different ways. What we see quite a bit in clinical work is that more so with men, they tend to be upset about the quantity of sex being low. And more so with women, it's the quality. Now, again, there are, of course, exceptions to that. But again, if we see dissatisfaction in terms of intimacy, that's going to be something that points toward rejection. Sign number nine applies to both person A and person B. And this is really also kind of a characteristic of the couple. And this is when the couple has a poor mechanism for resolving problems. So what can happen sometimes in relationships is both people can kind of see there's a problem and they can talk through it and they can work it out or they can come to a conclusion that doesn't make sense for them to be together. So again, there really isn't a rejection, but rather they agree the relationship should end. When there are poor mechanisms for resolving problems, we don't see that kind of migration over toward some sort of solution. And person B ends up rejecting, right? So we just end up in a situation where other mediation options aren't really available and it kind of goes to a more drastic option. Sign number 10 is when person B slowly decreases contact. So if person A sends a text message and person B usually responds in an hour or two, and now they're taking a couple of days, or if they're slow to return phone calls and just really spending less time with person A in general, that could be a way of them trying to signal that they want the relationship to end. But again, they just don't want to take that difficult step of rejecting. That's a fairly good sign, right? So slowly decreasing contact, and especially if it's a really dramatic change, if you look at it like weeks later or a month later, right? So a couple is spending time together every day, and now they're seeing each other once a week. That's pointing toward the relationship not working out and, of course, toward rejection. Sign number 11 is a prior history of being the one to initiate the end of a relationship, right? The one to reject. This is a reliable predictor. If person B has been in, say, 10 or 15 relationships over the course of three or four years, and they have been the one to reject the other person in every instance or in almost every instance, that's indicative of them rejecting now person A, right? So I would say that's as good an indicator as having exposure to alternatives while being intoxicated and extroverted, right? So one of the higher risk categories. Sign number 12, which is the last sign I'll cover here, is dating more than one person at a time. And again, I'm talking about some amount of investment in each of these relationships. Now, this is somewhat common, but it's still a sign, right? And really, it just comes down to mathematics, specifically probability. If somebody has five romantic relationships, and they consider themselves invested in all five, at least four will have to end eventually. Well, theoretically, right? I guess they could maintain them indefinitely. But realistically speaking, four of those relationships are going to have to end at least. Maybe all five will be over at some point. So that leaves person B rejecting four other people, right? So it's just a probability situation. If somebody is just with one other person, if person A and person B are together and there's no other people involved, all the things being equal, that decreases the risk 
of the relationship failing. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Breitigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.